What would you like to bounce about? I could mention that I watched Tenet and I regret watching Tenet. Start on a positive note. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't have to watch Tenet again. <laughs> but what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Hello and welcome to episode 118 of the Nerdfest podcast. This week's nerds are John Farber, Andy Chandler, Peter Johnson, and I'm Hazel Chandler. On today's show, we'll be recommending or warning against, in the case of John, some of the films and TV shows that we have been enjoying recently, including alternate history drama for all mankind, Frozen Planet 2, and Thor Love and Thunder. Plus, it's that time again where one of our lovely nerds gets one of their gaps heroically filled. One of us has never seen John Carpenter's The Thing and is here to tell the pod world what they thought. So, let's start the show. Are you finished your patio? <laughs> oh, not again. <laughs> yes, thank you. Oh, any top tips? No, and I refuse to fall for your trap you set me in our messenger group where you tried to ask me a sensible question about patios. Look, in 10 years' time, I might need that. <laughs> Hang on. What? Am I in danger? Oh, no. <laughs> you, you, you took a very large leap to burying you under the patio. I just meant laying out a patio. Well, it's interesting <laughs> you went there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is there anything you want to tell us? Are you telling me Peter hasn't killed anyone? We're not telling you that, but we're just, I'm you know. to say that on the air. It's unrelated. <laughs> and also, people should stop looking for his neighbour. <laughs> He's on a very nice holiday and has decided not to come back. We had a live show last night that went very well. We did, yes. A live improv show, which included some Dungeons and Dragons improv and uh, mm -hmm. John doing stand-up for the first time in 10 years. Seemed like it. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> just one reference to the human centipede. Just the one, yeah. Yep. But, you know, it, it's not a stand-up show. There's no human centipede reference in there. <laughs> You've got to give the people what they want, which is for that bit to end. <laughs> <laughs> and Andy was our official clapper and timekeeper. That's right. I'd like to think I was the beating heart of the show. And Peter did the lights. Yes, and sound. It was a, a wonderful experience for all involved except the audience. <laughs> but I'm, I haven't been watching much new recently. I've been catching up on like the ends of lots of shows, getting through the last episodes of Ozark and a few other things that are on the second and third season. It feels like at the moment there's not been that much exciting that's new. It seems to be things coming to an end, like Better Call Saul is another example. When is too long? At what point do you think, oh, I'm never going to remember where I got to? Oh, I don't know. There's been quite a few recently because of COVID and stuff where there's been like two or three years between seasons mm. and I've got lost doing that. So that's definitely more than enough. The Walking Dead is an example of a show that I actively didn't stop watching. I kind of just go, I've not watched this for three or four weeks and I've not really. Ironically, with The Walking Dead, you lost the will to live when you're yeah. watching it. <laughs> we went to see uh, See How They Run last week, which is a um, nostalgic murder mystery takes place in uh, West End Theatre Land in the 1950s. It, it, it's fine. I'm not recommending it today because it, it was fine, but it's, yeah. it, it's a bit of fun and it's a r lovely cinematic experience. I, I, I do like whodunits. Um, I do, yeah, and I, I, I love Agatha Christie who makes an appearance. 
it's not going to blow your socks off, but it is it is fun. I think that's a fair mm. review. I, it was okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It's, that's pretty much all you can say <laughs> about this thing. Yeah. The story was okay, but the, the mystery itself didn't grab you when just sucked in by it. Nope. Without Saoirse Ronan, it would have been maybe a poor film. Yeah, mm. she was Saoirse great. Ronan continues to never turn in a bad performance. She's, br- she's always the best thing in anything that she does. Sam Rockwell as well. Yeah, it has a, a, a wonderful cast. And that's the very nature of an ensemble cast is that not everyone gets their chance to mm. shine and some very awesome actors were probably on the outside a little bit. Uh, but no, it, it, it's fine. So you're looking <laughs> forward to the new Knives Out? Oh, yes, the Glass Onion. Watched a trailer for that the other day. Oh, yes. Am I the, like one of the only ones who enjoyed Knives Out? I really liked you Knives liked Out, it. yeah. I thought it was shit. <laughs> for me, it wasn't as good as I hoped it would be because I love a good juicy who did it. Something like uh, Sleuth or Death Trap. Mm. Intricately plotted. Keeps you guessing all the time and has mm. huge twists and turns. And Knives Out was weird because it broke the form in some ways because mm. it told you what had happened. Yeah. So mm. um, it, that was weird. But I expect to enjoy the next one more because I'll know what to expect. So is Daniel Craig the only returning character? I believe so, yeah. I would have liked Anna de Armas as his assistant or junior detective mm. or something. They could have formed like a nice little double act. Yeah, that could have worked. Has anyone seen much about, is it Blonde, the Marilyn Monroe thing she's starring in? The reviews all say she's great, but the film around it, yeah. maybe not so much. You could probably say the same about the last Bond film. Mm. But she had a little five minute where yeah. she was by far the best thing in the entire film. I think um, one of the controversies in bringing that particular film to life, Blonde, was apparently of something that happens with JFK. You know, look at JFK in a whole new, different way, but a, de- a way that we probably already knew. Hmm. <laughs> we can be like, no, you can't, you can't touch JFK. Well, she could. <laughs> yeah. She could, yeah. <laughs> Happy birthday, Mr. President. <laughs> we had to watch JFK at school as part of our school history lesson. The Oliver Stone movie. The Oliver Stone movie, and they presented it like it was a documentary, and we had to make like notes about it and talk about it in, in our history class. Even as a like a twelve year old, I'm like, that's not really. I'm pretty uh-huh. sure Tommy Lee Jones wasn't involved in real life. <laughs> Every theory some crackpot had told him he mm-hmm. stuck in the movie anyway. It yeah. seemed like, didn't it? It's a good film, but mm-hmm. you've got to sort of take it with a a truck full of salt. It's only about ten years until those documents get opened and we find out what actually happened. They keep moving the date that's oh, going to happen. Yeah. yeah. We've heard that a few times now. <laughs> and they'll also have to find the documents under Donald Trump's bed. Oh, <laughs> I mean, of all the things that you would probably find under Donald Trump's bed, I think that's the least worst thing. It would be squelchy, wouldn't it? It would be. <laughs> uh, we went to see Elvana as well this week. Oh, yeah. Um, me and Peter went on Friday night, um, who are, I believe, the world's only Elvis-fronted Nirvana tribute band. The world's only... Oh. I mean, I feel like I should start one up just to fuck with their marketing. What <laughs> <laughs> do you call it? Nelvis. They're actually local guys who came up with the idea in the pub one night as a joke and have run with it for many years, far further than I think they ever thought they possibly would do. So does it lean more Elvisy, or does it lean more... Sort of- it's kind of a mix. So the one that we saw was Alvana Unplugged, which was their recreation of the Nirvana Unplugged album. So it's a little less raucous than their gigs normally are. They play with acoustic guitars instead, and uh, they're wearing like velvet dinner jackets, like they did for the mm. TV show. And they all sit down on chairs, apart from Elvis, who sits on a 
gold-plated toilet on his golden throne. (laughs) (laughs) I saw them years and years ago, probably soonish after they started, and I I wasn't taken with it. I imagine that they've uh, polished it a a great deal Mm, since then. But Oh, well, it's just the the issue I had was that it just seemed like a Nirvana tribute band where the lead singer wore an Elvis jumpsuit but didn't try to kind of do any Elvis stuff and didn't sing like Elvis. That's kind of how John had described it to me, but there was actually quite a bit of Elvis in this version, so maybe this has more than that one because Mm -hmm. quite often they'll turn a Nirvana song into an Elvis song just for the last verse and chorus sort of thing. It'll merge into something else. Mm -hmm. I I like that idea. Smells like Teen Bride. Oh, well done. (laughs) You've been working on that one. No, no. (laughs) Should we do some recommendations? Yes, please. Excellent. All right. So things that we've been enjoying recently. Peter, why don't you start us off? Okay. This time I have a show called The Baby, which is a British horror comedy series created by Lucy Gamer and Sean Robbins Grace, which is currently being shown on Sky. 38-year-old Natasha falls out with her friends for not appreciating how their lives change when a baby arrives. The last thing she wants is a baby of her own, so when she's very literally landed with one, her own life starts to change drastically. She never wanted a baby, but this one has decided it wants her, and it'll stop at nothing to get what he wants. He twists her life into a total horror show with his controlling, manipulative ways as he inflicts violent revenge on anyone who stands in his way. All from beneath a cute, smiley expression. (laughs) His previous mother died before Natasha's eyes, and every time she tries to get rid of him, by leaving him somewhere or taking him to the police, something violently unpleasant happens. The series constantly brings new sets of surprises as we follow her attempts first to get rid of it, and then to work out where it came from. It's very darkly funny. Think Black Mirror or Inside Number 9, with a few more gags and a bit more blood and gore. The baby is played by a real baby, we're not talking Chucky from Child's Play here, who spends its days looking bemused at everything around it, with the creepy music doing all the work of making everything it does feel sinister. It's an all-female team making this show, cast, writers and directors, and some of this is definitely a metaphor for how a baby will take over your life so completely for a few years. You could say it makes the case you really need to want to have a baby before going through all this. So if you're on the fence, this might be enough to push you (laughs) over the other side. And of course, with things like Roe v. Wade, the idea of foisting a baby on someone who isn't in the right place to care for it is shown as the horrific idea it is. I'm four episodes into the series so far, really enjoying it. You can catch it for yourself on Sky and HBO. Mm. How old is the, the baby? Uh, I'm terrible at judging babies' ages. Let's, <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's say it appears to be eight months, but I wonder whether it really ages properly or whether there's something weird like and sinister crawling. going on. No, he's, he's right. in the pram all the time. Because I'm just curious how they get the um, like the evil looks. Is there a bit of CGI going on? He just there, has or? a vibe to him. They just, don't, they don't do evil, any. Evil they don't do anything vibe. clever. Evil baby <laughs> vibe. Yeah, he just you know looks intently at something. Probably his mother off screen. And uh, something bad happens to the person who's in his way. I see. Like, you know, someone will suffocate or be run over by something or fall off a cliff or, you know, something weird like that will happen. That's an interesting casting call, isn't it? Do you have a baby that looks slightly (laughs) creepy? Mm. (laughs) I'm not sure the baby does look creepy. He just behaves very creepily. Mm-hmm. Is this the advert that I saw where the, the baby kind of falls from the sky and then she catches it? Yes. That's the, that's, yeah. This is the baby. Yeah, literally okay. fell into a lap. Literally <laughs> fell into yeah. a lap. Ooh. 
And how, like how um, how darkly uh, comedic does it get? Does it does it push the boundaries a bit? Yeah, I think so. But also, there's a degree of the the fact it's a baby, which makes things just a bit more edgy than they would have been otherwise. Yeah, because you don't you don't you can't blame the baby for anything, and uh, you don't want any harm. Well, I think to you should blame it. this baby for oh, it because oh, I oh, think dear. it's definitely at a, a <laughs> fault. But it's just like he wills it, and it happens. It's not like a midwitch cuckoo's where he puts on a really intense expression and mm -hmm. people drive cars into walls, but mm -hmm. that's the sort of thing that happens. Kind of the omeny kind of thing. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah a little ba bit. Baby omen. A bit Damien. Mm -hmm. Has anyone seen Prevenge, which is a kind of similar concept, which I really enjoyed, which is a film written by and starring Alice Lowe. I think she actually was really pregnant when she filmed it. Oh. Um, and the idea is that she becomes pregnant and then she starts hearing the baby's voice and the baby's voice is telling her to kill people. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and that's a really, really good little fun independent film. So, John, as a lawyer, would yeah. this stand up in court? No. <laughs> <laughs> so as a parent, albeit mm. with a, a baby who's grown up now, Finally. did you relate to it? <laughs> uh, yeah, a bit, because it does totally dominate your life yeah. for, a, for a couple of years. Uh, mm -hmm. And you, nothing can really prepare you for how much it, everything changes. Mm -hmm. I mean, to some extent, uh, John and Louise having a, having a dog, <laughs> their life has changed <laughs> in a small way that re reflects some of that. But... Um, uh, yeah, they're even more high maintenance for a baby. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The number of my friends who have had kids and, you know, like Eamon's friends, they say, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll be back at the pub in a couple of months, so we'll be back, yeah. And <laughs> oh, we'll no, you back, won't. Yeah, and five years later, you just see them broken. <laughs> Hollow shadows of their former selves. <laughs> it's a story that very rarely gets told, as far as I'm aware. Most of the time, the trope is well, that... Well, because otherwise um, no one would have children. <laughs> Well, maybe the world needs that. <laughs> uh, but the, the, the trope is usually that for a woman to have a happy ending, then she needs to settle down and be a mother. Um, and that's always shown as the thing that is desirable and the correct way for things to go. And uh, it's nice that there's a show that's just showing um, a different perspective on, on parenthood. Whereas for John to have a happy ending. <laughs> I've had two already this show. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for not making it obvious. No. <laughs> Squelchy. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, tonally wise, and you say it's kind of a, 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 a dark comedy, was it going to a drama area as well, or is it, it pretty much in that comedy? Only in a sort of thing. You know, there's a certain type of British drama that quite often has a uh, reasonably young cast, uh, quite often black. So it feels like a sort of young British drama, uh, mm -hmm. but with these darker elements added. And is it, is it British? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm, I should think I want to watch yeah, this. Yeah, I'm intrigued hmm. by this. And um, our, our friend Beverly was particularly recommending this. Mm. If her recommendation means anything to you. Not really. <laughs> uh, does it mean more than Peter's though? <laughs> <laughs> How long are the episodes? Uh, I don't know. I'm going to say half an hour. Okay. But it doesn't feel too short, whereas, say, She-Hulk, mm. which we're watching, always feels like it's really trying too hard to cram stuff into 30 minutes. Uh, whereas this seems to work at that length. Maybe we should try it. Yeah. Where can we find it? You can find it on uh, HBO in the States or on Sky in here. Sky in here. In here. <laughs> <laughs> in the UK. Okay. Uh, so how many destroyed corpses with literally giggling babies sat in the entrails <laughs> out of 10 would you give it? I would give it eight destroyed corpses with fanatically Gig giggling yeah. babies out of 10. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> right. Close enough. Oh, sounds great. I think you'll enjoy it. Give it a go anyway. Mr. Chandler. Mr. Farthing. 
Hi. Three happy endings. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Are you sitting comfortably? Not anymore. <laughs> Good. Then I'll begin. <laughs> I'd like to recommend Frozen Planet 2, uh, which is the new BBC nature documentary about the life that survives in the coldest environments on the planet. It is, of course, narrated by the undisputed god of the medium, Sir David Attenborough. You're just bowing. <laughs> Uh, the first Frozen Planet was broadcast 10 years ago and depicted life in the Arctic and the Antarctic throughout the year. This new series expands on that by taking us not only to the poles, but also to other icy landscapes, mountain ranges, frozen forests, the snowy steppe of Central Asia, and even the frosty Gobi Desert of China and Mongolia. If you've ever seen any Attenborough BBC documentaries before, you know what you're in for. Um, spectacular, intimate footage of beautiful and remarkable creatures, expertly presented in a narrative format that entertains and informs at the same time. Sequences vary in tone, and the episode smartly ebbs and flows between tension and release. Um, so a heart-wrenching sequence of a mother polar bear struggling to hunt on broken sea ice in a vain attempt to feed her cubs might be then juxtaposed with a more light-hearted bit about a male hooded seal who tries to impress the ladies by inflating his nose like a balloon. <laughs> we've all tried it. Um, <laughs> you will go on an emotional roller coaster with this show, and it's all very well balanced. Uh, so I found myself laughing at some bits, awestruck at others, and there's quite a lot of sadness in there too. The incredible group hunting tactics of killer whales is gripping, but at the same time, I felt really bad for the seal out there fighting for its life. Maybe I'm too much of a softie. Unfortunately, it's impossible to make a documentary called Frozen Planet without mentioning climate change. The catastrophic effect that we're having on the world is the biggest cause for sadness in the show, and I had a vague sense of impending, inevitable doom throughout as a result. In 10 or 20 years' time, some of the animals seen on screen here may not exist anymore. So, you know, get in while you can. Um, it's not that the show is preachy about it, it's just the sad reality of the situation. I did love watching it, but came away feeling slightly glum. Years of planning and patient filming have gone into this series, and it shows in the fantastic quality of the footage. Uh, the crew get their well-deserved time to shine in the final 10 minutes or so of the episode. There's a segment documenting some of their experiences during filming and the lengths they have to go to to get such amazing shots. In some other lesser documentaries, these bits can be dull and feel like padding, but not here. It's really interesting to see behind the lens and know a little bit about the massive effort involved in making the show. So you can find it on uh, BBC. Episodes that have previously aired are available on, on iPlayer. At time of recording, there's only been one, but new episodes are shown on BBC One uh, every Sunday evening at 8pm. And yeah, just from the first episode so far, I'm a big advocate for the show, and I think everyone will enjoy it, especially Dan Watkins. Oh. <laughs> the bits on the end about the making of, which I enjoy from a sort of nerdy standpoint anyway um but they're all a reaction to this sort of shock revelation that not everything you saw in the nature documentary is true is that right the first time they did that yeah yeah it's always seemed weird because i don't know whether you ever assumed it was entirely true or whether there was a degree of creating a story i don't know i, I think kind of subconsciously i knew that but it was odd to see quite to what lengths they went to hmm. to recreate things and, and yeah i kind of felt a little bit cheated well in this it seems to just that they've captured a gigantic amount of footage and then it's in the editing that they create mm -hmm. the narrative i don't think they've staged anything mm -hmm. um at the end of the the one episode i've seen so far um it's about uh, a team in greenland that are trying to capture uh, the carving of uh, an iceberg as uh, a glacier kind of hits the sea 
they want to get drone footage as close as anyone has ever been um, to this. But when you see a big bit of ice start breaking off, it's already too late to launch the drone and so on. So they're there for weeks. And um, so it's really just documenting the sheer bloody effort that goes into it all. And there's some interesting mm -hmm. tech stuff. Um, but yeah, the, there's no, um, oh Jesus, we want to get the shot of a penguin wearing a hat and none of them have one. Just, just glue one on. There's nothing quite like that. Mm. What's your favorite animal that's been shown in the series? Oh, it's, it's difficult. There was, um, a cat out on the, uh, the, the Central Asian steppe, um, which, uh, you can get a, a clip of it on the BBC website and they describe it as the grumpiest cat in the world. Um, and it's, it's just a ridiculous bottle of fluff, which is lovely. But I think the best animal is, is the killer whale, the orca. And they're so smart. Their hunting tactics and um, creating waves to wash seals off of um, ice flows and so on, and then blowing bubbles to both taunt and disorient their prey. It's, um, yeah, it's really impressive. And I'm glad that they don't want to eat me because they would succeed. Sounds like they're actually quite evil. Yes, but I still like them. Seals can be little shits though, so <laughs> that's fine. So they get the seal of disapproval. Oh. <laughs> See, Sorry I, I, about that one. That's <laughs> all right. I always think think it's fascinating. It, it kind of shows how much there is out there that they've been making these documentaries for like nearly a century now, and obviously technology is improving. So, but the fact that they still manage to go and find new stories and things that we haven't seen before, and mm. I, I always think that's really interesting. As a whole, um, we've seen this kind of thing before. I mean, it's Frozen Planet mm -hmm. 2. Uh, the footage is all new. Uh, it's new stories, but you, you have seen penguins before. So it's not kind of as revolutionary and, and totally fresh as, um, as something could be, but that's, that's a very, very small criticism. They, I mean, they've got a winning formula and they very much stick to it here. Is Olaf the Snowman and Elsa in this one? <laughs> yeah, they're in episode four. Oh, um, excellent. I'll watch that. I think he, he tragically melts. Looking forward to it. <laughs> so how many taunted seals out of ten? Um, I'd give it nine taunted seals out of ten. Ooh. Excellent. Hazel, mm. you have a recommendation for us. I do. You want to give us that? Okay. <laughs> for... <laughs> what? <laughs> Four happy finishes. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought you were the scorekeeping. <laughs> I mean, I mean at, at the moment, it's just too impressive, actually. <laughs> <laughs> the last one was mainly dust. <laughs> so I'd like to recommend a show that has been going for a couple of years on Apple TV Plus, but I've just got into it recently and I am hooked. This is For All Mankind, which is a drama about what may have taken place if the Russians had won the space race and landed a cosmonaut on the moon before Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin had the chance. So that scenario is the catalyst for an alternate view of history and how different things might have taken priority in the years following. So when the Russian cosmonaut lands, he sort of extols the virtues of a Marxist-Leninist way of life. We then cut to the American astronauts, including Armstrong and Aldrin um, and Michael Collins, um, and they themselves are mere days away from launching Apollo 11, and they're a mixture of crestfallen and absolutely furious. So there's real-life people in the show, um, but the main story centres around a fictional character called Ed Baldwin, played by Joel Kinnaman, who I think was Robocop yes, he was. in the yeah. remake. Mm -hmm. 
So he himself is an astronaut and he was on Apollo 10. He may have had the chance to become the first man on the moon had he made a different decision or had his superiors not pulled him away. And his career trajectory is affected by that. And he drunkenly confesses to a journalist just after the Russians land on the moon that he could have been that guy had America not become fearful and unambitious as a result of trying to stay in the space race. So that has repercussions within NASA uh, and also the White House as well. Now, I think that would have been an okay story if we'd have just stayed there, stayed with that. You know, that, that I think there's something in there. But where For All Mankind really finds its stride is a few episodes into season one. This is when Russia's second manned mission involves a woman landing <gasps> on the moon. <laughs> I know. Suddenly, the Soviets are seen as this progressive state, and Richard Nixon demands that NASA put a woman on the moon pronto. Which is not that easy, because NASA doesn't exactly train a lot of female astronauts. So we see this fast-tracked training campaign involving the selection of talented female pilots and physicists and engineers. But of course, this is still early 1970s America. So when the most qualified female pilot is put up on the screen and her credentials are shown and everything, Nixon and his cronies are like, do we have anyone blonde? <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, the storyline just it, it gets better and better with each episode. You see these female pilots skillfully learn their trades. And what I really like is that they support each other through the process, which never happens in TV. You've always got to have the women knifing each other in the back for some reason. They don't always see eye to eye, but they've got each other's backs when it counts, which I, I, I really like. Woman supporting woman is so important. So you've got a lot of relatable storylines where these women are trying to balance their various home lives. So one woman's got a husband just coming back from Vietnam. Another has young children and she's trying to balance her training and being away for long periods of time, feeling like she's a bad mother and her relationship with the father. So the series keeps progressing both from a character point of view, but also, you know, we kind of go from the space race to what's next. So moon bases and things like that. It also gets more into politics, which gives it a bit of a West Wing feel. You see why I like it. And it, it just gets more and more interesting with every episode. So I like the premise a lot because in real life, the Russian space program kind of fell away somewhat after 1969. But this shows that key historical events they either came a lot sooner or they never happened at all just because the Russians beat the Americans. So the Cold War never really ends. It's almost like a butterfly effect kind of thing yeah. where this, mm -hmm. this one thing yeah. changes everything politically and historically yes. going forward. Yes, exactly. But more, more so than the, the premise, the, the show remembers to give its characters depth. So the dialogue is really strong, the relationships feel real, all the payoffs feel quite satisfactory. I think the, the, the writing staff has got a lot of credentials in this area. So the executive producer and main writer is Ronald D. Moore, who I think is behind... Battlestar Galactica. There we go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The production design, which, as you'd expect from Apple, is amazing because you've got these multiple large and, and complex sets. But it's, it, it's all there. Like the universe, literally and figuratively, feels authentic. And um, also, John, you'd like this. Apple have that access to the back catalogue of music. So Ooh. as the show goes through from the 60s to the 70s, season two is the 80s, season three is the 90s. They just, they use the music really, really well. 
so there's three series currently on Apple Plus. I think the fourth one's been given the go-ahead and is in the middle of shooting. The episodes are about an hour long um, and they feel like mini movies. So yeah, it's really gripping and uh, it knows how to start, tell a story and the word of mouth seems to be picking up for it, which is a, kind of a how I heard about it. I, I'm not sure it landed, no pun intended, in 2019 when it started. But Yeah, it was quite critically well received, I think, when it arrived. And there were some people were quite passionate about it. Mm-hmm. We only watched the first episode. And from what you said, it sounds like that was maybe where we went wrong, because as it diverges more from truth and reality, mm-hmm. that's kind of where the guts of the show is. Yeah. In watching just the first episode, it was a bit like, okay, so this is just about something that didn't happen. So what's the point? Because it was still quite close to the truth, but different. Yeah. I think the first episode is very, um, like, America great, isn't it? So That's probably also pissed us off. Yeah. Yeah, It's kind of, I I texted Ian uh, Mayer, who I think was farther along uh, than me at that point. And he's like, oh, just wait. It, It really finds its feet and finds its story. Where I really came, this is this is great. Is, is the uh, the the female aspect coming in and seeing mm. how that progressed? Yeah, you see, I kind of thought it was like this big, expansive space opera, alter reality thing, and I didn't realise mm. it had that like elements of drama and stuff in it as well, mm. which makes me more more interested to watch it. Yeah. Mm. Do so. Um, I'm really really enjoying it as well. It, it has its virtues at the beginning, but it really does grow into, into itself a lot more, both in terms of the, the historical aspect and also the characters, because the vast majority of characters start out as total assholes yeah. and then grow significantly and you get to like them more and they're still assholes a bit, but they're, they're complex and interesting. Mm. The first couple of episodes were very, very USA, 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 but also very, very macho, very, mm. I'm not going to show emotion. I'm going to go to the bar and I'm going to do a shot of whiskey. And then I'm going to yeah. say, hey, barkeep, give me another. It, yeah. That kind of cliche mm. thing. Um, and that kind of grows and develops as well. Um, it just gets deeper and deeper and richer and richer as it goes on. And I think you'll, you'll be hooked after another episode or two. Another Apple TV recommendation as well, I've noticed. We've had quite, quite a yeah. few of those. Recently. They may have small numbers, but they... The sort of overall mm. level of quality has been pretty high, hasn't it? Mm. Do you think there's a big dark cupboard of stuff that they just hide that they never, never tell anyone about, that they just don't produce? And I reckon there's probably a lot of pilots that get made and disappear. Mm. But they, they seem to be picking good shows and they also seem to be letting them run as well. So, like, as you say, this is in its third season mm. and it's only kind of just starting to pick some buzz up now and mm. get, get like the word of mouth is growing for it. So mm. I imagine if you were on Netflix or something, it would have been and gone and never spoken of again it looks astonishingly good especially mm. the shots on the moon uh just breathtaking it all looks fantastic i mean the amount of money they must have spent to go to the moon to film those shots <laughs> know, right? is just ridiculous isn't it so how many give me another shot of whiskey barman <laughs> out of 10 bad woman actually bad, bad mm. woman mm. how many shots of whiskey out of 10 um do you know what i'm gonna get very very drunk because i'm Ooh. gonna give it nine. Ooh, that, that is on the floor drunk and given that you're <laughs> singing about pixies after three <laughs> pixies <laughs> it's a black other joke yeah See the little goblin. Yes, see his exactly. little feet. Five. Five. Happy ending. Oh, <laughs> it's a song no. that <laughs> see the happy goblin. Six. <laughs> um, John, are you able to restrain yourself to get through your unrecommendation? I'm gonna restrain myself in other ways by 
trying to be as polite as possible about this recommendation. Don't bother, John. <laughs> let it go. Yeah, you just just release yourself. Don't tell him to let it go. He's already <laughs> done that. <laughs> yeah, my my thing that I have seen is <laughs> Thor: Love and Thunder, which is now on Disney Plus. I didn't see it at the cinema. I thought I would wait because, the, you know, you've got 45 days now and for something that didn't get great reviews, I didn't want to waste one of my few cinema trips on it and I'm glad I didn't. Whoa. So what was that noise? <laughs> was that Scooby-Doo? <laughs> <laughs> so we uh, pick up after the events of the Last Avengers movie, which, if you recall, ended up with Thor deciding to discover himself by going off on some adventures with the Guardians of the Galaxy. Mainly for the gag about as Guardians of the Galaxy, I think. <laughs> you should always base an entire movie around a gag. <laughs> yeah, they can never go wrong. <laughs> and then he's given a distress call by Sif, who has been attacked by Gaul the God Butcher. Butcher, that sounds exciting, doesn't it? He sounds friendly. Doesn't sound like Christine Bale in a some white makeup does it <laughs> i actually quite liked his makeup <laughs> Gaul the god butcher it started off as a god-fearing man with a daughter and he was trapped with no food and no water and all he did was pray to the gods for his daughter to survive the gods did not answer and this made him angry to the extent via some convoluted plot that i might have fallen asleep through <laughs> he basically decided that his reason to continue to exist was to kill all gods all gods must die using his necromancer sword Gore the god butcher attacks new asgard thor goes to defend new asgard and as the battle is about to be lost there's another thor and it's not only lady thor mighty thor it is jane foster his girlfriend from the first two films who has come back as a godlike Viking. How could that be? And why does she have his magic hammer that broke in the last film? It sounds nonsensical, and it is. Um, are we going to go into spoilers? I mean, it's been on Disney for a while. Have we, have we, have we all seen it? I'm not watching that shit. Yeah, you're not watching it. We've all seen it. All so, seen, yeah, if you, just, if you do yes. a spoiler warning, so yeah. if, um, if no one has seen Thor Love and Thunder, you might want to skip, insert number of minutes here. Yeah. Or watching the film. <laughs> yeah, we just don't watch the film. It turns out that um, Jane has stage four terminal cancer and is trying to discover a way to cure herself and as a result is called to the hammer, which Thor had previously asked to protect her at any cost. So when she welds the hammer, she turns from cancer-stricken Jane Foster to big, muscly, healthy, mighty Thor. But unfortunately, every time this happens, the hammer is kind of draining energy from her. So as she is using it more and more, she's becoming weak and weak in real life. So doing the exact opposite and of what it was intended to do, yes. almost like they didn't think it through. Mm. Mm. Basically, when she holds the hammer, she's mighty Thor. When she drops the hammer, she becomes ill Jane Foster. <laughs> is that her official name? I think that was the name in the credits. So obviously that happens every time she drops the hammer, apart from all the time she's not holding the hammer and it hasn't happened and they just don't mention it. <laughs> it's totally all over the place. Screaming goats in stage four cancer are not a mix that go particularly well. So the funny bits aren't funny enough because you've got this cancer storyline in the background. The sad, serious Jane is dying bits are undercut by terrible jokes. Yeah. I compared it a little bit to Pirates of the Caribbean mm -hmm. with Taika Waititi as Johnny Depp. 
in the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, Johnny Depp came on, did all this swaggering blah, 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 yeah. blah, thing, and people thought, that's ridiculous, that's not going to work. Let's let him do a bit of it. Let, let's let, let it, keep it in check. Let's let him do it. Let's see what the audience, and the audience really loved it. So with Pirates of the Caribbean 2, they just let Johnny Depp do whatever he wanted with yeah, no control. Just, turned yeah. it to 10. And it was awful. And kind of the same thing's happened here. It's like no one's told Taika Waititi that he's not funny. I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Many he, had, he has a restraining order. And yeah. you're not allowed within 100 feet of him. That won't save him. There's a lot of Korg voiced by Taika Waititi. He always puts a lot of himself into his stuff, doesn't he? The smug. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And do you want to talk about the least funny character? Uh, the only bit I quite liked, you mean. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Russell Crowe appears. <sighs> Russell Crowe appears Zeus with what is... Zeus? Zeus. 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 With what is the most... Oh, Zeus if you're American. <laughs> <laughs> it's the most ridiculous comedy Greek accent I've ever heard. It's like Harry Enfield doing the Stavros in the 90s when loads of money. Yeah. Literally uh, the definition of Pratt. Like he's such a Pratt. Mm-hmm. But that's his character, though. And I think he knew what he was doing. Did you know they actually did two versions of it? They did one in that accent and another one actually with a straight accent. I did not know with that. With an RP yeah. accent. Yeah. So that was a conscious decision yeah, by they, Tinker they to go that way. They knew that this may go horribly wrong and people may well hate this. But apparently they didn't hate it enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's bright and colourful and it looks really nice. You know, a lot of money's on the screens, a lot of CGI there. Mm. It's got... Like Valkyrie literally sitting on the sidelines yeah. while Zeus mm. is doing his baton twirly thing with his lightning rod. And it's, oh, I left the cinema feeling, oh, I don't, yeah, I don't think I enjoyed that, but I wasn't actively angry. I'm now actively mm. angry. I was actively yeah. angry at Tessa Thompson getting sidelined. She was entirely wasted in yeah, this movie. She looked yeah. so fucking bored. She looked more bored than Natalie Portman looked in Thor 2. I, I would say the Natalie Portman storyline, whilst I had problems with it, it did kind of get me in the end. And mm-hmm. I thought her performance was pretty strong. Yeah, I thought she was great in it. Yeah. She was the best thing in it by a long yeah. way. With Sif as well, like um, Sif, who he, we hadn't seen in in Ragnarok and allegedly is one of Thor's greatest allies, horrendously wounded and they just, it's like, he gag. finds it, and he, it's a gag, and they start mm. cracking jokes, and I was like, I don't know, in, in Ragnarok, which, as listeners know, I fought for, <laughs> um, really loved. I think that Pirates of the Caribbean analogy is, is, is completely correct, where they had the balance right in Ragnarok, and the, I, I know, I'm getting looks. Um, the, <laughs> just look at it, Andy. You know, they, they, they balanced out the funny with um uh the you know the sentimental moments whereas here the scale is really flipped in the wrong direction mm. and also just the, the the central premise of gore the god butcher going after these gods but the gods who are presented to us like zeus they are truly truly terrible Mm-hmm. privileged leaders who don't care anything about the people that they're leading and we're supposed to care that God, God the God Butcher is going after these gods. I actively applauded him doing it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. I just, you know, I, the, this whole central premise of the other film didn't work. There's so many plot points that they did not think through. I guess you get the thing in the first Thor film and maybe the sequel that Thor has gone through that journey though because at the start of the series Thor is quite you know an arrogant guy who doesn't really care about people and stuff and he's learned to love humanity and things like that and care about people and learn his responsibility so maybe it's just the other gods haven't had that opportunity maybe 
But also, <laughs> maybe. May- oh, maybe it's just terribly written. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I did kind of like how it ended, though. Do you want to talk about the ending? So I, Not I, the happy I, one. I, I, 12, by the way. Um, <laughs> I got both endings 20 minutes in. Oh, okay. Sorry, yeah. I shouldn't laugh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we, we, we're talking about the I was choice. talking about the door. What happens to the daughter? That would have been more powerful had that been what he wanted to do all along. I think it would have been a nicer twist had he got... Mm. won the battle and gone through and you were thinking he was going to destroy everything and actually all he wants is his daughter back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That would also have been WandaVision to some extent. So, no, because you think he's wanting to destroy the world and kill everybody and actually that's not what he's wanting to do at all. But to be kind of talked out of it in the last 30 seconds, I thought, mm. didn't quite land, but I think it was it was a nice mm. ending. Chris Hemsworth, real daughter. Is it really? Mm-hmm. Oh, I did yeah. not know that. Huh? Yeah, India Hemsworth. There was all the Hemsworths in the Wolf Lady was Chris Hensworth's wife. Yes, uh, and I believe one of his sons played one of their kids trapped in the KG thing as well. Ah. Yeah, they were all in there. And there's been some of his brothers playing alternate oh, versions yes. in the yes. drama. Yes, yeah. Matt Damon was back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and the very, very, very ending at the end of the credits where we see Natalie Portman and Idris Elba making a return, yeah. that would have been very nice had they not, on at least five occasions during the film, went, you know if you die in battle, you end up in Valhalla? Yeah. Like and yeah. that just got hammered home repeatedly, yeah. and we're like, oh, I wonder, I wonder where, yeah. wonder where Natalie Portman's going to end up. And I guess that repeated thing is something that I wasn't in a place to hear when I was watching Ragnarok, and Andy made this point that Taika Waititi had raised on podcast interviews and things that he likes to repeat things to the extent that they don't become funny anymore. And I think you raised that point, and I was, mm. I just wasn't ready to hear it. <laughs> and now I definitely see, okay, uh, uh, that's not okay. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Why we're talking about the goats, <gasps> the screaming goats. <laughs> Actually, I find it funny once. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, the auditorium I saw it in, when you see it live, you mm-hmm. perhaps get a different reaction. Yeah, I mean, you you saw it with her cinema audience, didn't you? As I well? did, and um, some people came dressed as uh, Loki, which I was like, oh, you're going to be disappointed, mm-hmm. um, and and Thor as well. So I was I was definitely surrounded by people who were going to appreciate the movie a lot, but I I didn't hear an awful lot of whooping. Mm. The big flashback to their relationship, Thor and um, Jane Foster's relationship, kind of, I didn't think was particularly necessary. We dealt with it in Ragnarok a little bit. Mm, I, d- I didn't mind that. I, th- I thought that was quite authentic. Mm. That can, that's what happens in a, in, a, in a breakup sometimes and things get in the way. And I I kind of, I liked that because we didn't get that in, in, in Ragnarok. They did, mm-hmm. just said it was a mutual dumping. As I say, there are elements in the film that I did really like, and they mostly revolved around Natalie Portman. Mm-hmm. But yeah, a big, big misfire for me. Yeah, yeah, same here. And I went in with high expectations as well. Yeah, that me too. Mate, that might be yeah. that might be a thing as well. Yeah. I think I went in with quite low expectations because what we said about what you, it. Yeah. yeah. So I, th- I think I was primed not to like it. I think Louise liked it more than me. I think mm. that's fair to say, particularly because she kept looking at me every time. And, <sighs> <laughs> which was a lot so Andy what did you think of it um, I've not watched it and I'm you do surprise n- me. never ever watching it um, but, and, and to be perfectly honest I, I wish I wasn't quite so happy that you all hate it so much. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was a better bigger person oh I'm sorry you didn't enjoy it guys but I mean you, you're feeling a fraction of what I felt after watching Ragnarok so mm-hmm. that's I, not true you were disappointed that I didn't like it 
Initially, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've come to terms with that now. <laughs> I was kind of messaging you guys as I was watching it, and then he was like, yes, yes, <laughs> let the pain flow through you. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, how many smug cameos out of ten would you give it? Three. This pleases Feel me. the pain. Oh, there's one for me. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's probably my bottom. Not my. <laughs> <laughs> no, just ended there. Is, is that what it is? <laughs> now we are going to explore somebody's shameful gap. Now, 13. This... I <laughs> 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 have to keep those in. Um, okay, so this is the segment that we do. That's what he said. <laughs> Everyone's still high on improv juice. <laughs> That's what I call it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Set you up for that one. Now, this is a segment that we do from time to time where uh, if one of us has not seen something that maybe, maybe we should have done, I don't know. That's judgment for you. Um, we watch it for the very first time and we come on the pod to talk about how we found it. And the topic of this particular shameful gap is John Carpenter's The Thing. So will the nerd who has not seen The Thing please make themselves known? It's me. Shame. Shame. Mm, thank you. Uh, well, it was me, but I've recently watched The Thing and I come to you now to tell you things about The Thing. Uh, so The Thing is a 1982 sci-fi horror film from Mr. John Carpenter. It's about a team of American researchers in the Antarctic who encounter a parasitic alien creature that absorbs and imitates other organisms. The group is attacked by the monster and then devolves into paranoid mistrust as they are unable to tell who among them is still human. It's an adaptation of a 1938 novella called Who Goes There, written by American author John W. Campbell Jr. The story had previously been loosely adapted in 1951 as an enjoyable B-movie called The Thing from Another World, which I had watched. It's on iPlayer if you want to watch it. Um, which inspired Carpenter to make his own version, sticking closer to the source material. It was initially a critical failure, with scathing reviews including phrases such as instant junk and wretched excess. <laughs> The 80s thing perhaps suffered from being released just weeks apart from Steven Spielberg's E.T. and having a very slightly darker and more nihilistic tone. Uh, it eventually found an audience upon video release and over the years has been re-evaluated and embraced as a classic. And it's deservedly best known for its incredible creature effects, uh, created by a team led by Rob Bottin. Using 10% of the film's overall budget of $15 million, uh, they used marionettes, prosthetics, hydraulics, and puppetry to create a myriad of grotesque practical creatures which easily stand up very well today, I think. The imagination and variety are incredible, and the effect is as captivating as it is gruesome and terrifying. Warning here for those who are particularly sensitive to animal suffering, though, there are some very unfortunate dogs in the film who you will absolutely not enjoy watching. Maybe give it a miss, Hazel. Oh, yeah, I haven't seen it either, by the way. Just With good reason, <laughs> as it turns out. Um, the other thing that the thing does brilliantly is to create a paranoid atmosphere thick with tension and fear. It's at its very, very best when the alien is lurking off screen and the characters left to argue amongst themselves, trying to work out a way to prove who has and hasn't been infected. So that's the good stuff, but the film also has some weaknesses. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Spoiler alert for what I think Oh dear, sorry I'll just delete the rest of this uh, 10 out of 10 uh, But I will mention just, just briefly First of all, the characters Where the fuck are they? They're pretty much all interchangeable 
A few of them have a single simple characteristic that distinguishes them slightly, like being particularly worrisome or something like that. But for the most part, they're just bodies. Kurt Russell is decent in the lead role of generic tough guy hero who flies a helicopter and is also a bit of an asshole. But none of them feel like real or interesting people. As a group, they're like background extras in a seedy, rundown roadside bar from an American road movie. Uh, They're definitely not scientists, just sitting around playing cards, drinking whiskey and being surly. I have no idea what any of them is doing in the Antarctic. The story is really, really basic. Um, Men are attacked by a monster and then get shirty with one another. I like a good narrative and the thing doesn't particularly try to go anywhere. Um, It's more of a mood piece, setting up a scenario and they're just letting you exist in that tense environment, which is fine and that'll work better for some people than it did for me. I did have a particular problem, though, trying to understand what the alien actually does, and I don't think the film made it especially clear. So it absorbs other organisms and takes their form, or maybe it infects them and takes over their bodies externally, or it makes copies of people. I don't actually know specifically how it works, and um, I'm sure at some point there was more than one thing at once, so it must be something weird. But it's important to grasp this because it establishes the threat properly and it justifies the character's fear, so this created a bit of a disconnect for me from the film. There was also an inconsistency about the use of fire. First they think that it kills the thing, then it turns out that it doesn't kill the thing, except then then it it does, or they act as if it does, and then it seems fine. (laughs) Overall, I did enjoy the film, but never felt really invested. So there are some great moments and some really good sustained tension, but not a lot else going for it, I think. Definitely not a classic film in my book, but it does deserve its place in movie history for the outstanding effects work. Interesting you talked about the characters not being well sketched. Um, I'm not going to disagree with you on that, but it, it just popped into my head that the kind of setup is very similar to Alien. Yeah. Um, and then if you look at maybe why Alien is a better film is all those characters in Alien have a backstory and a reason for being there and are all, are all different characters that you become attached to as they're being nope. killed off. Yeah. I think that's a fair criticism, but I just think the atmosphere and the setting and the, the tension of it is almost unsurpassed. To what extent were they thinking of it when they wrote Alien? Um, well, Alien predates the thing, so it'd be the other way around. It's Alien 39 and yeah. Things 82. Is it now? Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, fair um, so, there, the other way around. Then. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there is a connection there in that Dan O'Bannon, who wrote Alien, worked with John Carpenter a lot and the oh, student Dark film Star Dark, and Dark Star yeah. and things, yeah, so there is a kind of connection there. Hmm, interesting. But uh, the music as well, uh, it's one of the few films that Carpenter didn't score himself. It's Ennio Morricone, I think, did this right. music oh, it for is, it. yeah. yeah the music. Still, still not bad. Yeah. <laughs> but, the, yeah, I mean, the effects of the thing that stand out all these years later it's one of the best use of that sort of practical animatronic effects in horror we've ever seen and probably do you think they date better than cg stuff's ever gonna have you seen the thing at prequel that came out about 15 years later list for you (laughs) Uh, 2011 they actually filmed it with practical effects Mm. then decided they didn't like the practical effects and replaced them with cgi and it's terrible probably not to do with what the effects look like no it doesn't help (laughs) The human eye is fantastic at, at catching fakeness and bad CG mm. is mm. is much, much worse than bad puppetry or animatronics or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, even if there's, there's something slightly off with the movement, um, the fact that it's a real physical object that's there gives it a weight that you don't get with, with bad mm-hmm. CGI. So um, it, I'm a huge advocate for, for practical effects. I watched um, 
uh, a Ray Harryhausen film recently and um, all the stop motion stuff. Uh, it's wonderful for its era, but it's still charming today. Yeah. And um, I don't think I'm going to be charmed by, say, Avatar or something in 20 years. Mm-hmm. Time. I'm not charmed by it now. I think my favourite sequence is the bit where they're testing the blood. The tension of that scene leading up to it. And mm, that, that, yes. that, I think there's some good characterization in that scene with the, you know, the, the way that they're bickering amongst themselves as to who's going to take the test and how it's going to work and that kind of thing. I think, yeah. I think that, that works really well. But that isn't really extrapolated over the, the entirety of the film. They're, they're mannequins. Well-directed mannequins, though. Yeah. <laughs> I think. Um, I did find the the opening sequence dragged a little bit, the bit mm-hmm. with um, the helicopter chasing the dog because it got silly that they couldn't shoot the dog, mm-hmm. which, spoiler, isn't a dog. Um, and also there's a bit where uh, the Norwegian tries to warn them, but it's the only Norwegian in the world who doesn't speak perfect English. Mm-hmm. <laughs> never met a Scandinavian person who doesn't speak better yeah. English than me. So it's mixed then, you would say? Yes. Yeah. I would. I'd say mildly positive about it. How differently do you think it holds up to, say, Alien? Because they're only a couple of years apart. And like I say, in my head, it was probably because of budget as much as anything else. Mm-hmm. It, it feels like an earlier film. I think I like Alien slightly more. I'm not a huge fan of Alien. Really? Um, okay. Hazel's just thinking, I'm never going to watch this film in any way whatsoever. Um, it doesn't sound like a very Hazel film. Um, the animal torture uh, put me off somewhat. Well, not torture, but just what happens to the little doggies. Hmm. But they're not little doggies, so it's fine. They're, just... they're huskies. They're, yeah, and they love huskies. Oh, I love huskies so much. Mm-hmm. Never watching this film. I mean, if you were to stroke a husky and instead of this going a load of tentacles, was, was that fifteen? <laughs> a load of tentacles um, jumped out of the stomach of the husky and tried to strangle you. Mm. Would you still like I, huskies? I, I, I'd take against them. So, how many? surprisingly non-bilingual Norwegians out of 10, would you give it? I would give it 6.5 surprisingly non-bilingual Norwegians out of 10. And now can we have that in Norwegian? <laughs> I think I think that might be 6 or 7 I in possibly Swedish. sex on the roof. 17. <laughs> <laughs> And that brings us to the end of this episode of Nerdfest. Thank you so much for listening. Until we're back in a few weeks' time, you can catch up with our back catalogue of episodes. You can also keep up to date with us on social media at Nerdfest UK on Twitter and Facebook. And if you have the time and information, you can always leave us a review and test your fate with a reward from Mr. John Farthing for doing so. John, what is this week's listener reward? If you like or reply to any of our tweets, I will deliver to you free of charge two screaming goats. <laughs> Until next time, you've been listening to... 21! <laughs> <laughs> a man who's going to p- 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 pick up a penguin. <laughs> a man who, like all men, is just a big baby. Can't argue with that. Who's <laughs> killed a lot of people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and a woman who quite likes to build her own moon base, but even that can fuck off. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Bye bye. Bye. Twenty two. <laughs> <laughs> Let's put that on the end.